Mark, team number 523, I'd ask that you think with me over the next few moments about an interesting and somewhat volatile subject, emotion and religion. In fact, if we might so begin and at least think about the character of our study this morning, you may have noted that as we read together a moment ago from the 10th chapter of the epistle to the Roman brethren, that an interesting discussion there took place concerning the element of zeal and the element of the enthusiasm and the energy with which one may in fact pursue the service of the God of heaven. This morning, might I submit and suggest to you that we will take an interesting journey trying to decipher and in fact rightly divide that marvelous truth of God and appreciate the thrust and power that emotion should or should not have in the nature of service to God. By way of introduction to the lesson, might I submit to you that there is a wide difference of perspective and feeling as it relates to that very subject. In fact, consider this with me. You and I are both are able to perceive that many rely almost exclusively on the subject of, of, of emotion in order to them prove that they're right with God. In other words, they rely upon a feeling or the emotional response to, in their mind, illustrate and demonstrate that they are pursuing that which is right. There are others, on the other hand, who go to just the opposite extreme and say that emotion has no role to play in the pursuit of God, that it's solely intellectual, it is mental, and therefore all other matters related to feelings are removed. There are still others who will perhaps devalue or de-emphasize the character of emotion while nonetheless claiming it does have value. I wonder which one does the Bible perhaps describe, or are any of them correct? You see, religion, as self, it would seem, does have some degree of emotion within it, doesn't it? The word emotion simply means strong or intense feelings. Should anyone have strong or intense feelings about the nature of the gospel and the nature of the very Son of God who shed his blood for us? We might expect or anticipate an answer being yes, but should we say, is emotion all of what one should appreciate in religion? Is emotion then the rule and the guide for all practices? Is it right if I feel like it is? This morning, let us use God's word to answer that. As we've often made note, my thoughts or my feelings, your opinions, really are meaningless in terms of eternal value. But what does God have to say? May I submit to you that as we strive to understand this, we will, do, we will quickly learn and determine that emotion must be a part of our service, but it must be emotion guided by knowledge, emotion grounded in truth, emotion that thus is bounded by those truths of God. Consider with me then some instances where religion was practiced in the Bible, but the emotion that was tied to it was not a guarantee of its truthfulness. Let's note that again. There are times in the Bible that we find emotion that was misdirected, emotion that was misguided. And though those who claim to be engaged therein thought that they were pursuing God, we shall readily learn that that was not the case. Let's begin in the Old Testament. Turning back the clock to 1 Samuel chapter 4, consider this with me. There, the scene of ancient Israel was an exceedingly interesting one. 
The Philistines and the Israelites were engaged in somewhat ongoing warfare. They battled one against another. And as chapter 4 of that book of 1 Samuel opens, we remember that Israel had suffered defeat. 4,000 Israelites had been slain by the Philistines. And in the aftermath of that, the leaders of Israel decided, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. For certainly, if the Ark of the Covenant be with us, God will not let us lose. We will be victorious. We will defeat these Philistines. And we will enjoy conquering of them. And thus, they proceed to make that very decision. But do you remember what happened when they brought the Ark of the Covenant from its resting place to the point where the battle ensued? In verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, the text says, The people shouted loudly, and the earth rang again. Was Israel emotional? Absolutely. They were excited about having the Ark of the Covenant in their midst, for they presumed that it would guarantee victory. They presumed that the Philistines would soon be defeated. However, as the chapter moved onward, what was it that happened? Did victory follow? Did that emotion result in the proper pursuit of the will of God? We will remember that it was an absolute disaster. In fact, let's note, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, 30,000 Israelite men died, and the two high priests, the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were killed. In fact, from an Israelite's perspective, it would be difficult to map out a worse defeat than that. Not only did you militarily lose, but you lost the precious Ark of the Covenant, and furthermore, the high priest died, both of them. Could we then easily conclude emotion did not result in that necessity of following truth? Just because they were emotional did not mean that God's will was being pursued. What about a second example? In 1 Kings 18, in fact, not many chapters forward from the one we just studied, but centuries later in terms of time, we recall that Elijah, the bold and courageous prophet of God, was laboring amongst the people of Israel, but there was a tremendous difficulty in sin of idolatry that was rampant in the land. In fact, that was primarily because of two people, Ahab and Jezebel. They had brought idolatry to unseen levels amongst Israel. And Elijah, being the bold prophet of God, opposed their idolatrous work. However, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, it came to a head. You had a large group of people who were in need of understanding the truth of God on this, and thus Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest. He said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve him. But if Baal be God, serve him. It was a straightforward decision. And hence, beginning in verse 18 of that chapter, we remember the interesting scene. In fact, Elijah said, Let's take two bullocks. You prepare yours, and later I'll prepare mine, and we will call upon our God, in my case, the God of heaven, in your case, Baal, and the one who sends fire from heaven and consumes this will be the God. Seems like a fair contest. Elijah, being the chivalrous, interesting person he was, allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. And thus, he, we note that they prepared their offering. They laid it upon the particular sacrifice. And interestingly enough, they proceeded to call upon Baal. And the text says, from morning until noon. They called and they called and they called. But the text says there was no answer. 
None. Absolute silence. And thus, at about the noonday time, at about the midday period, Elijah said, perhaps he's asleep. Perhaps he's on a journey. Perhaps he's occupied. You need to shout louder, and so they did. And with great emotion, they proceeded to shout even more remarkably. And the text says they even cut themselves so that the blood gushed forth. Emotional? Absolutely. Enthusiastic? No doubt about it. Energetic? Without a doubt. However, there was still no answer. Finally, by the time the late in the day period came, the sun was about to set. Elijah, in essence, said, I think we've tried long enough. And thus, he proceeded to prepare his own sacrifice, the other bullock. Not only did he prepare it, he had it covered with water. And a trench that was dug about the altar, they kept pouring water on it. And Elijah just humbly prayed to the God of heaven, and fire came down and consumed not only the sacrifice, but those stones out of which the altar was made, the wood that was on the altar, and lapped up all the water too. Which one was God? Certainly it was Elijah's God. But notice how enthusiastic and how emotional those prophets of Baal were. And yet they were not truthful. Yet they were not grounded in that which was of knowledge from God, and hence their emotion was misdirected. It was not directed in truth. Perhaps those two examples are enough to recall to our mind a host of others that could well be mentioned. Perhaps one final Old Testament example in Amos 5. That small little minor prophet nestled not far from the close of the Old Testament. And yet we find in verses 21 to 23 of the book of Amos, but especially note verse 23, God speaking through Amos said, I've had enough of the songs. They are noise to my ears. Enthusiastic Israel was, sure. Were they emotional and were they in fact excited about what they did? But yet God said, I've heard enough of this noise. I need judgment to roll forth from your heart like waters. I need truth to emanate from your service as I've commanded. We see one more time that even God's people had lapsed into emotion without truth. Enthusiasm without proper direction. And as such, God wasn't pleased. May we thus interestingly learn the lesson that emotion does not correlate necessarily to truth. It didn't in the Old Testament, and as we will soon see, it didn't in the New Testament either. Maybe at this point, one initial lesson we may extract from these studies is to always make certain that we have our emotion grounded in truth. Emotion must be firmly according to that which God has revealed in knowledge. Because, in fact, can we not see nextly? In addition to the thought of misplaced emotion, does the Bible give us information about properly placed emotion? Instances where emotion was grounded in truth and where God found it pleasing? We will find the answer to that to be an overwhelming yes. Look with me, if you would, at some of these zealous statements, these descriptions of emotion in which God placed His blessing upon those who acted in emotion. In fact, let's begin by looking at 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 to 15. We won't read the entirety of that text, but it may be as one that will rail up in our mind a powerful thought and an interesting statement about emotion. I would like to read in our hearing, beginning in verse 11 of that chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. By way of introduction, let me quickly say that this was a period in the Old Testament in which the ruling king at the time was named Asa. 
you might recall a bit about Asa. He was one of the better kings that Judah ever had. In fact, he was the third in that line. And as he attempted to pursue and follow that of God, we find the prophet Oded who came and made an interesting prophecy to the man named Asa. In response to it, this is what Asa did. And they offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. That whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. For they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them and the Lord gave them rest round about. Emotional? Absolutely. The whole tribe of Judah sang and shouted and praised. It says the whole tribe, the whole congregation did that. And there in the last text, was God pleased with their emotion? Did he respond favorably to it? Absolutely. He gave them rest round about. And notice that in the process of their rejoicing, it says they sought the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. They weren't trying to oppose their emotion to what God said. They were trying to harmonize and unify them and to let God's commandments, His statutes, His judgments, and His laws direct their emotion. There's a fundamental difference here. This emotion was pleasing to God. It was one that was bounded by God's revealed truth. It was one in harmony with His inspired will. And thus, we notice that alone directs our attention to that text read in our hearing earlier in Romans, the 10th chapter. In this New Testament text, we have, in fact, a volume of information. Notice with me again those inspired statements of the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And thus Paul again informs us of many possibilities and the exact truth of the events of that early day in the congregation at Rome. You and I are well aware of some of the historical matters. Who was it Paul was speaking about there? Who were these people who had zeal but no knowledge? the Jews, we remember that they were God's selected and chosen people of the Old Testament. But from that time that our Savior died at Calvary, God welcomed both Jew and Gentile into the body of the church. In fact, Paul could equally say in Ephesians 2, he hath removed that middle wall of partition. We are now one in Christ. However, the Jews were slow in learning that lesson. They thought they were the chosen ones and they intended for it to remain that way. And thus they were hesitant to accept Gentiles, these uncircumcised ones. Paul said, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the Jews, is for them to be saved. God wants them to be saved. I want them to be saved. They are zealous. They are enthusiastic. They are energetic. But the problem is... Their energy, their zeal, their enthusiasm is not bounded in knowledge. 
So powerful were Paul's words, he said, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They are trying to make their own righteousness, and that will never do. You see, we cannot claim to make our own righteousness, for you and I by ourselves are not. And whatever emotion that we have, certainly it should be there. But it must be bounded by the knowledge of God's revelation. We can't step beyond it. Though we may feel emotional and powerful about it, that gives us no license to step beyond the bounds of God's revealed will. As we've seen these issues concerning emotion, might we observe the fact the Christian should have strong feelings about his religion. You and I should have very strong feelings about Christ, about God, about the church, about what Christ has accomplished for us. The text of the Bible abounds with texts that in fact lead us to that understanding. I would ask that you consider just a few of them with me. Zeal, as it's defined and discussed in the Bible, is such a powerful idea. We each know how attitude can make a world of difference. How that if we are energetic and zealous about something, often we are able to accomplish it much better. In fact, perhaps whereas we would not accomplish it at all. Think about the zeal then that we ought to have. Isn't it fair to say that according to Jude 23, you and I were snatched out of the pits of a fiery hell. God did that for us. He revealed to us His will and thus saved us from the devil's hell because of our obedience to what He has revealed. But notice as well in 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 that our Savior Jesus Christ hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Who is it then that brought life and immortality? The Lord did. It wasn't me or you. But Paul in some sense is just warming up. Notice what John declared in 1 John 4 verse 10. Not that we loved him, but he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What did God do for us? He gave his son. Nine verses later, we love him because he first loved us. That love that's described there is that selfless agape love. It is a love that is not, in fact, that which is selfish in character. It's selfless. It gives all of oneself. In fact, notice what else is stated in texts such as John 3, verse 16. To many, the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice that God so loved us. You and I, being in sin, were apart from him, enemies to his nature, enemies to his will, violators of those things most pleasing and cherished by him. And yet, he, though we were in sin, sent his Son on our behalf. Should we then in emotion respond to God? Should we love him and strive with zeal to do that which he's commanded? Absolutely. Many texts, in fact, even command it. Notice, if you would, with me, that interesting refrain near the close of Titus 2. In verse 14, in speaking there of Christ, the inspired apostle Paul was able to say, He gave himself for us and purified us from all iniquity, zealous unto good works. Zealous? That's what the Holy Spirit said. To be overcome with energy and enthusiasm and zeal in pursuit of truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, the last verse in that resurrection chapter of the New Testament, 
Paul was able to say, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Abounding? Yeah. Overflowing? To exceed to the point that you and I are able to master with the skills and capabilities God has given us? An enthusiastic pursuit of the will of God. That zeal, then, that we see to be present and powerful in our service to God certainly should be a part of worship. You and I should look forward to those times that we can come together like this, to sing praises as we've already been led this morning, to pray to God, to surround the precious Abel that commemorates what His Son did for us, to give as we've been prospered in response to His blessings to us, and yes, even to turn our attention to His Word and to let it challenge us and to let it emanate in our heart and to let it, in fact, bring us into compliance with His thoughts, His, re His revealed will. It's an enthusiastic time. But, as we've already learned today, Jesus, in fact, stated this Himself in John 4. Is emotion all that's a part of worship? Is it enough to come together and sway and hold hands and holler and jump and shout and leave and say we've worshipped? There are some in our world who, by the process of being guided only by emotion, feel that way. But Jesus timelessly and forever said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It is true that our spirit should be involved in our worship. We, with mental assent and understanding, should be involved in that worship. We should appreciate the things involved in it. It is more than just emotion. But Jesus did say, in spirit and in truth. He didn't say or, he said and. And thus, we understand that our worship must be bounded in truth. Whatever emotion may be present in our heart must be bounded in truth. Didn't Jesus chastise and challenge those of his day with that very failure on their part? In Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9, Jesus, as he entered into discussion with some of that day, reached the conclusion in verses 8 and 9 when he said, This people honors me with their lips and draweth nigh to me with their hearts, or with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. Lord, what was the problem? But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Their worship had become vain. Were they perhaps excited? No doubt. Were they enthusiastic? Certainly. Were they emotional? Absolutely. But the truth wasn't there, for their heart is far from me. Unlike Israel in Second Chronicles 15, they hadn't sought the Lord with all the heart and with all the soul. Our worship today, then, can be emotional but yet not be right. On the other hand, it could be truthful in the sense of following the statement of Scripture, but there could be no emotion in it. If that's true, it's just nothing but habit and ritual. That's not pleasing to God either. We need emotion in our service to God. We need to be fired up about the Lord, interested and enthusiastic and zealous about His will. But we must always remember that emotion must be checked and balanced by the character of truth. The truth has to determine how far emotion can go. And if we go beyond that, then emotion has gone too far. Some of these comments encourages them perhaps in some summary thoughts this morning. And many of these again taken from that text in Romans 10. 
those Jews of Romans 10. You might remember that from the book of Acts, they were so zealous in opposition to Paul. More than once, they tried to put him to death. That's how zealous they were. They were convinced that this man was a phony, a fake, an imposter, and that he was not a servant of God. However, all along, they were wrong. Some of them came to realize that fact. Paul, in fact, reached some of them with truth. Earlier in Acts, in chapter 6, verse 7, speaking of some who were Jews, it even notes there that some of the priests obeyed the gospel. You see, some of them did come to respect the truth, and they obeyed it, and they recognized then that their zeal would be according to truth. So many times as we appreciate the nature and character of emotion and zeal, we each can be caught up in it. We each can, in fact, respond by setting aside the prescriptions of truth and to just think that our way is best. May we never forget, though, the sentiment of Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You and I can't just allow emotion to guide us. Our feelings are not a strong foundation. Our feelings are not a bedrock foundation on which a life of proper directed zeal can be based. We have to have the truth. Didn't Jesus state near the end of Matthew 7? Two foundations. One man built on the sand. It crumbled and fell. One built on the rock. Though the winds came, though the rains descended, though there were terrible turmoils in regard to the statements of weather, Jesus stated that foundation stood firm. And not only that, that which was built on it stood firm too. Do you remember the point of the Lord's illustration? Those who founded, who built upon the rock, were those who heard what Jesus said and did it. Those who were foolish, namely those who built only on the sand, heard the Lord's word but did not do it. You see, we can't let emotion be the ruling guide by itself. Zealous we ought to be for sure, but we must allow the truth to guide that in the proper way. Maybe this morning as we conclude our lesson, might we observe some of these thoughts that we've considered today. In conclusion, isn't it then easy to say, it is possible to allow emotion to be the exclusive and sole guide. If that's true, that's incorrect, that's wrong. For as we've seen in the Bible, emotion by itself is not a sustaining and truthful guide. However, it's also possible to err in the other direction where there's no feeling, no emotion at all. As we've earlier indicated, that just reduces Christianity to a, to a habit, to a tradition, to a ritual, and that won't do either. Because the church in Ephesus was told, you've left your first love, Revelation 2.5. If you and I are not then on fire with that love for the Lord and to bound our emotion by His truth, we are sliding on slippery ice. Perhaps the best statement of all with regard to proper emotion would be found in Galatians 4.18. As Paul wrote to that church, to the churches in Galatia, as he directed this inspired comment to them, he said, it is always good to be zealously affected in a good thing. Isn't that wonderful? It's always good to be zealously affected in a good thing. That ultimate good thing is, of course, God's revealed will. The nature of what He has revealed is always that which is good, and as you and I properly and rightly divide it, we can then emotionally follow that with enthusiasm and zeal. And in so doing, 
Not only our worship, but the other aspects of our service will be proper and right and will be found pleasing unto our great God of heaven. Emotion does have a place in religion, but that emotion, as we've noted, governed by truth. What about your life in Christ today? Are you in Christ? Have you ever responded in faith to the beauty and power of what the Lord accomplished on your behalf? God dispatched His Son from heaven, and when Jesus came to this low ground of sin and sorrow, He did so for the express purpose of reconciling you and me to God, a fact of which we read in not only in 2 Corinthians 5, but in 1 Peter 3. And thus, you and I must respond in faith to the precious gift of God's grace. Today, have you responded in faith? You contact His cleansing blood when you respond to the gospel which concludes at the point of baptism on that initial scene. As you believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, as you confess His name as Lord and Master of your life as the Son of God, you then are a candidate acceptable at that in the eyes of God for immersion in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2 verse 38. Once you have engaged in that, and by the power of God had your sins cleansed by His blood, you rise a new creature in Christ. Having then become a member of the Lord's body, you are ready in enthusiasm and zeal to pursue serving Him day by day until the time of your demise. Thus have you become a Christian. If you haven't, let today be the day. This third day in December 2006 could be your spiritual birthday. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been true to that calling, you've allowed Satan to inch his way back in, and now when you give him an inch, he's taken a mile, and your life is but a shell of the righteousness it once was. Come back to your first love today. Come back, and with open arms, the Lord will welcome you back and reinstate you to a position of love and harmony with His will. And again, with zeal, He'll fill your heart, and you'll be ready to serve Him masterfully through life. If we could be of assistance to anyone today in any of these ways, let us know that. Brother Eddie has chosen that he will encouragement, and if we could be of any assistance to you, let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.